Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Podcast in LGBTQ Plus Studies. I'm Shohini Chatterjee, PhD student in Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University. And I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Hannah McCann, Senior Lecturer in Cultural Studies in the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. We'll be talking about Dr. McCann's book entitled Queering Femininity, Sexuality, Feminism and the Politics of Presentation, published by Routledge in 2018. Welcome to the New Books Network, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to have you here today. Um, If I can begin by asking, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to critical femininity studies or how it came to you and how did you conceive of this book in particular? Over to you. Yeah, so this book is based on my PhD research that I completed at the Australian National University. And I I mean, I guess when I started, I I had kind of vague ideas, <laughs> like a lot of PhD students when you're starting a PhD. Um, and I wanted to write a kind of, you know, critical engagement with feminism and feminist theory around femininity. I'd, I'd always kind of been interested in this, um, you know, area. But uh, and I, and as I talk about in the book, a lot of that's just from my personal experience and, you know, growing up and in this kind of like feminist household, um, but it always kind of being a little bit at odds with my own gender presentation. And it wasn't until like a few months into the PhD that I actually discovered this term, um, femme. So queer femme as this kind of identity position in LGBTQ communities where, you know, people were embracing and celebrating their femininity, their feminine gender presentation um, and reclaiming it as as a queer kind of position and, you know, talking about the fact that if you're queer and feminine presenting that you sometimes can be seen as not queer enough or read as, as heterosexual and indeed, um, you know, when you're in kind of straight spaces, your your queerness is totally invisible um and then when you're in queer spaces your queerness is still invisible so um it, I came across this and I it was like a revelation to me I thought oh my gosh like this is me I I'm a queer femme and this kind of taps into so many things I was already thinking about femininity and feminism but brings in this this other angle the kind of queer queer aspect and yeah, from there, that's really where I started focusing on on queer femininity and femme subculture. Um, the book's based on interviews that I did with people who identify as queer femme in Australia 
And um, and it wasn't really until the end of my PhD that I heard about the field of critical femininity studies. I mean, at the beginning of my PhD, I don't think it had even really been discussed in many places. So um, it was an emerging field in response to the dominance of masculinity studies. And, yeah, so that's how I kind of articulate myself now is, is someone sitting within the field of critical femininity studies who's attempting to, you know, give time and attention and seriousness to the topic of femininity. Wonderful. Um, what struck me in this book is the idea of utopian femininity and how it is not merely a subject position punished and consumed by capitalism, but capable of engendering radical anti-normative possibilities uh, beyond the politics of representation and the empowerment-disempowerment binary. Um, could you perhaps expand on the con- complex idea of utopian femininity, which is um, the anchor of your book for our audience? Yeah, so I think that when we talk about femininity a lot of the time, it, it does fall along this kind of empowerment-disempowerment binary. So it's all about, you know, either reclaiming our feminine side or expression as like some agentful thing that should be celebrated and, you know, it, it, it verges into this very quickly, this kind of choice feminism, which is, you know, based on the idea that it's all about the individual making choices about how they present themselves and so on as the, as the you know, justification. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the kind of critique of femininity, which is like it's very disempowering because it, it shows a capitulation to norms of gender, um, expectations of heterosexual presentation, uh, you know, beauty culture norms and the kind of oppression that comes along with that. So, like, there's not much room there, right, between this kind of like quite neoliberal individualist understanding of of expression versus this very kind of structural um top-down oppressed kind of subject idea and what I wanted to do with the book was really look at the kind of in-between space that is like the experience actually and the feelings associated with feminine presentation and this kind of subjectivity and I think that once you start to kind of strip away the the kind of didactic politics of the, you know, disempowerment, empowerment binary and just kind of start to look at how people feel. It's not like those issues of agency and structure become irrelevant. Like obviously they're still at play, you know, gender norms are real, they do circulate, you know, people are oppressed by kind of expectations and people do have agency so it's not like any of that tension goes away, but you you start to get a different picture of how people are kind of navigating their lives in that context, in that amongst that binary. So um, it's in that space, I think, that you get this kind of glimmer of a possibility of what a kind of, you know, we might call like utopian femininity might look like in the sense that you know, and I'm I'm really borrowing from Jose Esteban Munoz a lot in the book here around the idea that kind of queer utopia is always on the horizon. It's not something that we can kind of grasp directly. It's this like future possibility that we strive towards. And I think that, you know, similarly the way I think about gender expression is like, yes, there is this neoliberal discourse at play and this um 
you know, these punishing kind of norms at play, could we find an imagining of gender expression beyond that, a utopian way of understanding it? And for me, part of the reason for thinking that's possible or, or I suppose desiring that possibility is that I just I just don't think that that gender expression or expression, I suppose, more specifically, falls away if if we change the structure and if we if we don't have capitalism anymore, you know, if we don't have the system of oppression and patriarchy that we have now. Like I just think people's desire for creative expression of themselves, you know, it might not be articulated in the same way along a gender binary, but obviously, <laughs> but uh, you know, that the desire for expressions will still exist and it won't be this case of kind of like everyone's just going to be wearing grey overalls and <laughs> have neutral gender, whatever that would could be. Um, it's it's rather the opposite of that. It becomes this experimental kind of field of possibility, I think. And I think that that's what, what you can get a glimmer of when you talk to people about their experiences of trying to navigate the system. Mm-hmm. In your book, you also critique the denigration of Ranch culture and how femininity is performed within that culture and how a kind of feminism appears to be hyper-aware of the sexualization of femininity in, in this culture and considers it to be potentially damaging. Um, you also yeah. write that such a position views femininity as essentially steeped in consumerism, considers it to be anti-feminist and pro-capitalism, and and fails to really take into account the uh, pleasure, desire, attachment, and celebration that accompanies the embodiment of such femininity. Uh, why do you think desire's association with femininity has come to be denigrated? And what does this mean for the present and future of queer feminism, as well as the reception of queer femininity? Mm. Well, I mean, I think like I just read so many feminist critiques of raunch culture that were kind of circulating in the of early mid 2000s from people like Ariel Levy who wrote Female Chauvinist Pigs which people might be familiar with and it just seemed so unqueer to me I mean I guess you know in critiquing this kind of sexist culture and expectations for women to reveal themselves and the kind of objectification of bodies like I can get on board with that but there was just a way that it was done that kind of eliminated the experience and 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 the women n- navigating this field. So, um, you know, really, one of the things I've written kind of after the book is a is a paper on um, which you know I touch on in the book as well is is like how fake breasts really became this kind of like symbol of like anti feminism as if or like lost feminism. So, you know, it was like. It was almost like the the feminist writing about ranch culture was like adding to the objectification by kind of like reducing, the, like creating these kind of caricatures of women under ranch culture and like who would, you know, dare go out and get a, a boob job and whatever. Anyway, so I guess I was engaging with all this kind of material and just thinking like, well, you know, what about all these experiences of, of you know women who end up kind of like kissing each other at a party or something because because of this kind of sexist patriarchal branch culture and you know it's like seen as something you enjoy as like a spectacle right like or you do it 
not seriously. And, um, and that's been critiqued by some as like uh, this kind of heteroflexible culture, this performative sexuality, not real, not real queerness. And I thought, well, that's not really how people experience it though. Like, you know, what about like how that can kind of be a gateway to um, exploring your feelings, uh, your queer desires, your same-sex desires? Like it is. I know. I've talked to people. I mean, this is the thing. And I wanted to draw out where's the touching, where's the feeling, like where's the sensations that are tied up with that, like or the pleasure of being viewed, like where's that in this account? I mean, it's just they're very, very kind of flattened accounts, I think, of of what's actually going on. And when you you set up this kind of like moral panic really about this huge thing called raunch culture without really understanding what's going on for a lot of people that are part of this. Um, And, of course, it really dovetails with a lot of kind of like sex worker negative ideas and the long history of feminist debates about pornography. You know, these are all interrelated things and I I think... um, I wanted to add to also that, you know, long feminist history of, of providing a kind of queer critique of, of, of the anti-raunch position. Mm-hmm. You also note that the discourse around political effectiveness of feminists is not enough to capture the complexity of femme identities as articulated by your interlocutors. Um, what effects do you think deprivileging um, power and politics and critical femininity studies produce in the understanding of um, queer femininity? Yeah, so one thing I noticed when I started talking to people who identify as queer femme is that there's this real pressure, I suppose, or expectation within that subculture to, you know, do do femininity differently, to signal a kind of queerness despite one's perhaps normative feminine expression. So, you know, getting tattoos or um, piercings and, and other kind of markers which might, you know, or shaving part of your head or whatever, like something that might signal I'm doing femininity but I'm doing it a bit differently. And um, that's totally understandable. I mean, myself, absolutely. <laughs> I have tattoos, you know, I've done shaved my half my head and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what, you know, what emerges from that is this idea that, you know, there's a, and, and particularly what emerges from the idea, not just of those norms, those kind of queer femme norms, but like that, that you have to embrace it as this like radical political position. It puts a lot of pressure on that that identification. I mean, it it requires that you do it correctly. It requires that you like own it in this way that is like asking you to enroll yourself in a kind of politics, right? Like your identity, um, which really you know goes to the heart of like debates about identity politics. Um, but it. it it causes anxiety. I mean, it doesn't alleviate the anxiety of not being recognised. It kind of puts a new onus on you. And um, I think what it does is paradoxically undermine the ability for us to see the idea of femininity as queer because it says, well, femininity can be queer but only this kind that matches these queer norms, these queer fem norms. And only if it's embraced knowingly and with this kind of political will. And 
that to me seems to undermine the very point of having the articulation of queer femme, which is to say it really does not matter what you look like in terms of your queerness. So, I mean, to me that's the heart of the point of it all is like, well, your your gender expression really should have nothing, no, no one should make assumptions on that basis about your sexuality and we should try and strive for a society where we we are so open to the queer possibilities that we don't assume people are straight. Um, we never assume their gender. And that's, yeah, uh, so we can say, like in your question, it's like what about the evacuation of politics? And that's what I mean. I don't mean it's not political. I just mean trying to alleviate the pressure of the political. Um, you write that when, when femme is understood as a resistant, unsettled identity, its queer potential is somehow rendered invisible. Um, would you like to expand on this? Right. Okay. Sorry. So this is really dovetailing with what I was just talking about. So it's, um, it's once you put the onus on femme to do the work of resistance that you lose the kind of point of articulating femme in the first place. So it's about, you know, exactly what I was saying before where it, there's this kind of like problem for the femme who doesn't feel queer enough and who doesn't feel visible. Um, and then once you start creating these kind of queer femme norms about how to do femme properly, then you've you're just back at square one because it's like well if you don't do that then you're not queer enough you're not queer femme enough so that's really the issue at stake here you write and i quote femmes wish to be read as intentionally feminine and authentically queer but not necessarily authentically feminine in this putting on of femininity femmes aim to communicate intentional inauthenticity unquote what discursive and subversive effects do you think intentional inauthenticity generate yeah so again this really dovetails with what i was just talking about in terms of the the idea or like how intentionality is navigated and how it can become really problematic in terms of undermining the point um so yeah, I think it's this really interesting thing where it's like you queer feminist is is seen to be based on like a chosen femininity and to point out the very inauthenticity of femininity as like a masquerade, which is really how femininity has always been seen as a put on as something that requires, you know, you consumption and you to put things on and um and, you know, beauty products and dress fashion. Um, and really this kind of there is a very strong strand in femme discourse, you know, in terms of the people I interviewed, in terms of the, the kind of femme um, texts, discussions that I analysed in, in my work of, you know, femme needing to be intentional, femme needing to signal the intentionality of that, femininity and the inauthenticity of it which you know I'm not sure about like do we like what I I don't think that that doesn't I mean I, I what I mean is that really does reinforce that political problem I was talking about before um and you know what about people that feel it's authentic 
like what about <laughs> what about those queer femmes who feel like it isn't a put on like it's something else like and that <laughs> you you create these kind of schisms within the experiences of queer femme i suppose I'm thinking about the variety of ways in which queer femininity is understood, embodied, and performed. Um, how do you think queer femininity can further be theorized to privilege difference? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I've stopped working so much on queer femme now. I mean, it's um, it's lovely to have conversations like this where, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that work again. Um, but much of the great work that's being done in this space is um, by people like Rhea Ashley Hoskin, who is just doing incredible work about kind of like um, masculinity and feminist and like race and femme and, you know, other like intersectional kind of issues and, and feminists. And um, it's been amazing to see actually how critical femininity studies just generally and not just necessarily focusing on femme, queer femme identity, um, has just taken off. Like so many people want to do PhDs on these topics now and there's more publications coming out. I mean, it's not huge. It's definitely not like masculinity studies. We don't have a critical femininity studies journal yet. We don't have the kind of funding that gets given to masculinity studies scholars. But, you know, just to see that turn, I suppose, and be part of the turn toward focusing more seriously on these questions and also not, you know, not being necessarily critical of femininity. In fact, um, you know, Rhea's work proposes this idea of femphobia, which is not specific to queer femininity but more about the kind of denigration of femininity and people's experiences of that and how, masculinity is privileged in a lot of contexts and so on it's just it's so fantastic to have that discussion now and I feel like that was missing for so long and it certainly wasn't there when I was writing my PhD so um yeah I mean I think that's that's the work that is being done about kind of um you know different approaches to to femininity and femme now and um there's also I mean there's like a femme conference coming up soon um uh, I think it's called maybe like Femme Excess or something like this. Um, I can't go because it's like the time difference is far too harrowing for me based in Australia. It's like it starts at like 1 a.m. for me. Um, but, you know, there's this really, really good work going on. So it's exciting. And hopefully if people are interested in this, you know, you can you can take a look at it. A final question out of curiosity. What are you currently working on? So after I finished this project on queer femme identity and the kind of queering femininity questions, I wanted to keep working in critical femininity studies, but I wanted to go somewhere outside of like the queer identity politics space because my thesis, I suppose, about the queer potential of femininity and how we should, you know, take seriously questions of femininity in all its guises and expressions I thought, well, I want to go somewhere less obviously queer. And so I turned to the site of the beauty salon and I started doing interviews of beauty salon workers about their gender expression and presentation. And it was really interesting because I was kind of interested in this like aesthetic labor question at first, which was, you know, how you had to present yourselves in the salon. But then 
they didn't really, I mean, they kind of wanted to talk about that, but mostly they wanted to talk about the emotional labor of the salon. So the kind of things they hear from clients and the difficult things they have to navigate in those conversations um, around like family violence and, you know, um, mental health issues, uh, marriage breakdown, relationships, job losses, gender transition, uh, all kinds of, you know, um, traumatic issues and so on. And there's no training for that. So I, uh, I kind of just followed this path. It was really organic, you know, just following what came up in the research and I ended up now I'm working on this grant um, funded by the Australian Research Council um, which is about the relationship between beauty salon workers defined as you know hairdressers barbers um, beauty workers and like you know manicurists very broad <laughs> and their clients so it's about the relationship between the workers and the clients um, all of these issues about kind of disclosure, but also what those spaces then therefore mean for people. So it's really, um, it's kind of got this like in, uh, industry-focused side where it's like, well, gosh, what do we need to do to reform the industry in terms of supporting workers, providing training, debriefing mechanisms, so on, all this stuff that's missing. Uh, and also just culturally valuing that aspect uh, and perhaps financially because they're very low-paid feminized industry um there's industrial side and then there's kind of a a theoretical side which is about beauty and it's like similarly to my work on queer femme where I was trying to come in from the side angle it's like when we're thinking about beauty we don't really think about those spaces as these spaces of emotional intimacy necessarily or um, the production of good feelings we think about those spaces really along aesthetic lines and there's a lot of moral panic like oh you know women are just so obsessed with their appearance that even during the pandemic they're prioritizing going to the salon and so on and it's like well actually what do those spaces mean and I've done some work so far in this grant um I did a survey last year in in 2020 at the big you know first part of the pandemic and people talked about it the salon as being the only place they could have time to themselves have someone listen to them have time away from their children but also the importance of the uh, process of being in control of your body and having your identity curated in that space, um, which has profound implications for people in the queer community too. You know, a lot of people talking about losing their sense of queer identity because they couldn't kind of present in the way they wanted because they couldn't access those services like barbers. And, yeah, so, I mean, it's exploring kind of similar threads from the Queering Femininity book, but just in a different site and, and a different focus on beauty. And if people want to um, read more about this or get involved even, um, the website is beautysalonproject.com and you can read all of the media that we've done so far and some of the publications that are coming out. Um, but it is, it's, a, it's a long project, so we've got a few more years to go. That's absolutely um, fascinating. Um, thank you very much for this conversation, Hannah. Um, I really hope the engagement with critical femininity studies continues and more and more people get to read your absolutely um, fascinating book. Thank you so much. It's been really great to chat and think about all these fantastic questions. Thank you again. Um, take care and have a great day ahead. You too.